So it's Davos week when the uh, most important people in the world and perhaps uh, who have ever lived get together to decide what the betters should be uh, allowing the not-so-betters to do with their lives. Has anybody ever tracked this stuff? It's just, it's very interesting. You know, they get together, they fly their private jets to uh, Bond villain layers in the Swiss Alps and uh, have conversations. It's really weird because I think people have been doing this throughout history, but uh, nowadays there's a thing called the internet, and so people take videos of, and they put their own videos up, but everybody can kind of see what the Bond villains are doing with their spare time. And they sound really perturbed because they're very shocked that not everybody's excited about their plans for people, whether it's the bugs or the 15-minute cities or the no airplanes for you. Or, or no cars, or whatever all their ideas are to rescue the planet. Um, they're shocked and appalled that uh, people don't want it. And so now the big issue for the year is um, the stopping all the misinformation, disinformation stuff. Can I just help you out? If somebody in the suit is very concerned about misinformation or disinformation, they're probably the bad guy. Because usually normal people want to make their own decisions about what's right and wrong. Anybody? And so uh, having the important people control what you even find out about, um, we don't want that. And they don't get it. So anyhow, um, one of the things that was really funny about it is... uh, they started their event with having some kind of uh, witch or Wicca invoker spirits over the proceedings, which I don't think they believe in. I don't know why they do this stuff, but they want to appear like a people, like they're people of the people. So they'll get some somebody to come in there and invoke their spirits over them. And then this individual went and coughed in the faces of all the important people. They did just like <laughs> in their face as part of it which you don't know if they didn't know if it was going to happen or if they've just repented of what they were doing two years ago. And just that last thing didn't work, so now I'm going to try the opposite of it. It's just so bizarre. So anyhow, we'll have a little uh, spiritual cleanse just by reading Psalm 2 together. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. He who sits in in the heavens laughs, especially at the spitting part. (laughs) And the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And skipping down to the end, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now we're kind of joking around, and people who do stuff like that can cause a lot of trouble for people. But as I'm moving things into the message today, I would just like to say, when I see events like this, I am convinced again and reminded again about the human heart's ability to be so wrong while feeling so right. 
When I see events like this, I am reminded afresh of the human heart's ability to be so wildly out of touch and wrong while feeling so justifiably completely right. And then I remember that I too have a human heart. Do you? Oh, what to do. Every single one of us spending most of our day feeling so right and surprised that nobody is agreeing with us. Sometimes in our family, sometimes in our church, definitely on the world stage. Wouldn't it be nice if somebody who actually was totally right would communicate with us what he thinks so that we might agree with him and also, over time, become more right? Wouldn't it be great If a being who knew all things and saw all of human history from every perspective would communicate with us what he sees and knows to be true so that we might agree with him and be rescued from this flailing about in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of a storm, in the middle of the night, clawing and biting each other, trying to turn everybody else into a life raft that we might climb upon to save ourselves in the ocean of self-righteousness so that we might come to an island of refuge and be able to put our feet on real solid ground and enjoy the sunrise of true knowledge rising upon us and maybe eat some coconuts and work on our tan. And learn to love each other. Wouldn't it be great? Oh, that's happened? Why don't we preach about it? Okay. Today's message is called The Sound Mind, The Sweet Spot with Scripture. There's all different ways to use Scripture. A lot of them can cause some harm. Um, I do humble myself repeatedly in life to remind myself that Jesus' worst enemies knew the Bible better than everybody else in their generation. Pause. Remember that our Lord's worst enemies knew their Bible better than everybody else in their generation. Ah! The sweet spot with Scripture. We're going to read a different psalm. We're going to read Psalm 19. And we can read this together and then I'll make some comments about it. To the choir master of Psalm of King David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, and there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them, he, God, has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his wedding chamber. It's not in this translation, but it should be. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heaven and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Stanza 2. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts, which is another word for like laws and stuff, of the Lord is right, Rejoicing the heart. 
The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold and Bitcoin and Ethereum and whatever else you think is inflation-proof these days. Even much fine Ethereum. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So this is a poem. This is actually a... The Hebrew equivalent of a rock song, uh, hip-hop, uh, whatever. This would be their pop music of their time, of much better spiritual quality than somebody getting up there to declare that karma is her boyfriend. Ugh. You're making nausea, my boyfriend. Ugh. But we don't have the music, but we did keep the lyrics. And this is a psalm written under the influence and the guidance of the Spirit of God coming through King David as he is um, exploring God's revelation and using the scriptures that he had to worship God, to be wise in God, to go into life in God, and then to plead that God would change him through the power of his word. And so we're going to work through this together. Let's start at the end. Here is a man who wants to have a sound mind. God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Um, The older you get, and maybe this is true for people older than me, but it seems true to me, the older I get, the more I realize that what people think to be true often has a lot to do with who they want to impress. We kind of get trained in this as kids. We send kids off to a room full of other little people, and then there's like one big person in the room, and we give those big people laser pointers or control over the projectors, and we call them things like teacher. And we give them big red pens, or green pens, because red was bad all of a sudden, whatever it is. Like somehow making the X mark green is less psychologically traumatic. Maybe. And then then what happens? A generation of kids get traumatized by the color green. And every time they see the go sign, they think they've done something wrong, and then they swerve into your car. (laughs) Yes, no, probably not. Whatever. Does this happen? I'm sure not. It does. Okay, this one person that maybe it's this color and emotional associations. We require a lot of work. Um, But it's true. Learning is relational. Uh, You're a small child, and you learn that whatever ticks off your dad is bad. He asks for the beveled flange, and you hand him a crescent wrench, 
top blown. You know you did something wrong, you're not sure which, you start to guess. But your sense of right and wrong and up and down is often about how people are responding. And we like to think there's such a thing as facts not caring about your feelings, but most of us, our facts are filtered by the feelings we want to have. And the people we want to please. And the relationships we want to protect. And the, the groups of people we want to associate with. Whether we want to be part of the Davos group. Or we don't want to be part of the Davos group. We want to be the people doing church out in the woods. Or we don't want to be people doing church out in the woods. It's very few of us that can actually just handle facts being facts being facts being facts. And I think David kind of knows this. So when he's thinking through things, the end of his psalm says, Lord, whatever I say and whatever I think, I want you to be happy with me. I want this to be a thing where the God of the universe looks at my mind and my heart and my facts and my speech and says, I guess the saying with a sum up isn't saying. The good news is, is that when the God of the universe likes what you're saying and likes what you're thinking, you're going to be doing better than if he really doesn't like what you're saying and what you're thinking. But this brings us into this whole reality, like why do people get so messed up so easily? Um, Often, especially once you're out of math and physics, though I'm sure there's politics in math as well, once you start dealing with people, there's power struggles, there's relational issues, there's all kinds of things that just aren't true truth. And there is this part of human beings where we need to decide Is my brain the Lord's? Is my heart the Lord's? Is my mind the Lord's? Or am I doing this on my own? And usually when we're saying we're doing this on our own, we actually have a people group of important people in our head that we want to impress by what we think. Weird. Uh, This is weird about being human. Like, oh man. Anybody feel uncertain yet? No, you're not sure yet. Where are you going with all of this? Why don't you tell me first? Where I'm going here is I'm advocating for us to be in the Word, in reading the Bible, in order to be pleasing to the Lord with what we think and say. That that the measure of our meditations ought to be accepting God's Word worshipfully so that we can be who he made us to be. But this is the thing. Um, I remember, yeah, I'll go here now. I remember one of the big crises of faith that I've had. I haven't had tons. I tried to have all my crises before I came to faith, and I did. Um, But I had some sense I did, and it had to do with what I was going to do with the Bible. I was at Regent College, and some of the professors were kind of pushing towards, like, not the same as just saying the Bible is infallible, the Bible is true, the Bible is faultless, pushing into other directions there. And before I had gone, a man named Barney Coombs, which I considered an important spiritual leader in my life, had said, I'm a little bit concerned with some of the stuff the people at Regent are teaching this time. Just 
keep your guard up. And so I felt stuck in between two important people, my professor and my pastor. I was in that triangle of stress. And I ended up sending the angry letter to Barney, interestingly. Um, probably because he wasn't marking me on anything. Now, I got out of school, and the, the, event, the eventual result of that crisis of faith was me going, look, this either is, is either a communication from God or it isn't. And if it is a communication from God, I'll never be competent to judge it as wrong. And so the only right response will be to endeavor to believe it and respond to it well for the rest of my life. If it's a communication from God and there is a God, then I will never actually be competent. Like, I've never made a universe. I've never lived forever. I've never swallowed up kingdoms. I've never defeated Satan on a cross. I've never done anything that important that would make me competent to tell God he's done a bad job making a scripture. And so the only right response could be humility, humility, humility for the rest of my life. And I've been trying to, uh, to do that. And you can be the judge of how well that's going. And then God will judge you for your judgment. <laughs> and then I'll enjoy the judgment. And then God will judge me for enjoying the judgment. You're laughing, but like, that's how the Bible says it works. If you enjoy people getting judged, God will be like, I don't like that. And then the cricket bat comes out in love. All that to say, this is the sweet spot with Scripture. That while we're in the Word, while we're hearing the Word, we want the Holy Spirit who knows our hearts inside and out to be pleased with what's going on inside of us, to be searching us, to be analyzing us, to remove whatever's in here that isn't his, doesn't make him feel at home in his temple. Because he is our rock and he is our redeemer. If, there anybody, if anybody's going to be pleased with your life, let it be the Lord who's pleased with your life. If anyone's going to praise you, let it be the Lord who's praising you. If you want to make somebody happy, let it be the one who's only happy with the best for you. That's thought number one about the sweet spot with Scripture. Thought number two, so kind of jumping into the middle. Sometimes um, the Hebrews, when they're writing stuff, they'll put the best part in the middle. We like to save the best for last, we say. They put it right in the middle sometimes. So here is David trying to have this life of thinking and speaking that is most pleasing to the Lord. And a big part of it for him is doing everything he can to love and respect God's written word. So how Hebrew poetry works is they say one thing and then they try to say it again in a fresh way. It's called parallelism. Let's pause. One, two, three. Say parallelism. Okay, and this is what you do. So in English poetry, we like rhymes, right? You've heard me say this before. Roses are red, violets are blue, blah, blah, blah. And you do? 
Thank you. You know those are the rules. It has to rhyme. It's like roses are red, violets are blue. I'm a little bit hungry. Somebody get me a sandwich. You're like, fair communication, but it's not a poem. In Hebrew, it works by thought rhymes. Not so much sound rhymes, but thought rhymes. So it's, and usually two is enough to have a valid Hebrew thought rhyme. So when you're into one, two, three, four, five, six thought rhymes in a row, you know he's hardcore and that this is the important part of the poem. If two thought rhymes are fine and he's on number six, this is his arm-waving moment of the poem. So what do I mean thought, thought rhyme? The law of the Lord is perfect. So the main thing is the Lord in here because he's the source of the word. This is, this is from him and he stands behind it. He created it. He's over it. He's under it. He stands behind it. And then you see the rhymes of law, testimony, precept, commandment, rules, and even the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is like a, a way of talking about treating God's revelation as something you need to respond to with reverence. Law, testimony, precept, fear, rules, they're all like the similar ways of saying the same thing. It's God's written word. And then perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true. These are all similar ways of saying It's right. Do you see that? Okay, so I'm talking through the nuts and bolts of how this works. But the heart of it is that David is saying, I love your book and I want to think your thoughts after you. I want to understand what you want. And the more I give my time and heart to getting what you want me to get, the more my soul is revived, the more my simplicity is revived, replaced with wisdom, the more my heart rejoices, the more my eyes are enlightened. Um, The enduring forever part is a bit of a tweak because it's just talking about how it lasts and it's turning into the quality of it, that it is righteous altogether. But this heart of actually thinking and saying life the way God wants, uh, David is saying, flows out of loving the word of God. And we are a blessed people because we have so much more word to love than David did. We've got the whole, everything written after he died, plus the New Testament, which is so funny. I mean, God, God's a God of curveballs. You would think that there'd be more writings after Jesus came than before. But it's like, it's very succinct. And it is short enough that no one can actually have an excuse for not reading the whole thing. You read more words in texting than you in a year than the new testament true fact does somebody have an app where they just text you the whole new testament in the year yet has anybody developed that you want to make a buck somebody want to make a buck yeah right i don't think it's a million dollar idea but it could be like a 13 dollar idea right there (laughs) do you need 13 dollars Now, this is, um, you know, easily preached. I know there's difficult passages in the Bible, and I know there's stuff in the Bible that is, doesn't always make you feel good. But this is about attitude. Um, 
in the world and in the church, there's always conflicting attitudes towards the scripture and its trustworthiness. In the 1700s and 1800s in the church, instead of having a treatment of the Bible as scripture and a communication from God amongst the academics and the elites, it just became a historical document that was meant to be dissected to try to find evolutions of religious thought through time. Anybody familiar with this? It was the most wasted hundred years in church history, I think, where they just looked at the, and they, they would look at the first five books of the Bible and they say, okay, these parts were written by Moses, but these parts were written later by priests, and these parts were written by this cult, and this, and by the time you're done, it's like, what does it even matter once you chop it up? And there was no good answer. So they just like wasted a hundred years of scholarship. But the point was to not receive it as a word from God. <laughs> That's the point. Nowadays, things can be lost a lot in, I think, um, cultural discussions. And this was their culture. This is our culture. And yes, these things can be helpful. And yes, we can learn some insight. But sometimes people don't come back to what one person called a second childhood with the Lord. You start off, you're reading the Bible, and you hear it just as a child, and your father's talking to you. And then you go off to university, and you get smart, and suddenly you're too smart to believe it anymore, because you've learned this, then you've learned that, and you've learned this, and you've learned that, and you're a critic now. And as Bruce Walke said, quoting somebody else, who Bruce Walke's probably one of the smartest people I've ever met, and who did have a genuine love for Scripture, he says, you've got to find a way to come back to the Bible as a child. Just accepting the word of your Father who loves you. Or else it's going to get weird. David here is having one of these my dad is bigger than your dad moments with the word of God. My dad's the best. My dad's the smartest. My, when my dad's talking, it's the cleanest, it's the rightest, it's the purest, it's the best. My dad can smoke your dad in a fight, and he has seen that quite a bit. But he even talks about how this is more desirable than gold, and even more sweet than the honeycomb. Um, a little story about the further adventures of Timmy Balfour. Timmy Belfort is our adoptive Bulgarian son. He's been home for how many years now? Almost six years. He's doing great. He's learning words like crazy. In my heart, he's the unofficial mascot of Calvary Church. And uh, so he's great. He could eat noodles almost every meal. He does eat noodles every day. There's something like they just, there's nothing like routine uh, for people with, many people with Down syndrome. Routine is the best. If, you, if they had a good day, they would live it every single day of their life and be totally content. Um, sometimes I think we're too smart for our own good. But the other day, I was taking care of him, I think, I was, and he just didn't want to eat goldfish crackers. And then he didn't want to eat noodles for dinner. <laughs> it's like, what? He doesn't want to eat noodles? Get the margin containers. Because he's going to puke. <laughs> That's like the only... No, apparently there's some stuff, some bug going around, and he didn't event, He didn't ultimately evacuate all the, uh, the bilge pump systems, but he was really sick. 
And this is just knowing Timmy that he loves noodles. He, he would breathe noodles if he could um, do that. He's never met a noodle that went into his mouth that ever came back out willingly. Um, when all of a sudden he didn't want noodles, we, were, we knew there was something really wrong with him. Similarly, when a child of God doesn't want the word of God, something's gone wrong. Now, I'm not saying that with any judgment, and I know we have ups and downs in our season, but in any given day, if the word of God does not taste sweet to you, pray. Pray. You may have a spiritual bug that isn't the Holy Spirit. David lived in the Old Testament times, but he really had a New Testament faith. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And for him, his appetite for the scripture was, this is better than honey. And remember, he's living like in the Bronze Age where honey was all you had for sweets. There was no refined sugars. It was either honey or, or fig cakes. Uh, pick the honey over the fig cakes. But this was all he had for sweets. This was all they had for dessert. And he says, God's word is, is better. But he's worshiping the truth of God's word, the Bible. Now what this helps him be able to do is go into reality, still loving God. This is the beginning of the psalm where he's talking about the heavens declaring the glory of God. And essentially what he's saying is, if you're in reality, you see everything you see as something amazing God is doing. Now, there, there are alternative worldviews. In David's time, he lived in a time of paganism and idolatry where they saw everything as a god that needed to be fearfully worshipped. The sun was an angry god. And if you didn't give him his proper worship, he's going to get you. The moon was an angry god. If you didn't give him his right stuff, he's going to get you. There could be a spirit in every river you meet. The hills had certain gods, and the plains had certain gods, and everywhere you went, you had to, like, kill something, or auger something, or read the goat livers somehow to figure out what's going on. Sometimes it's chicken livers. But their view in David's day was that what we would call creation was actually a hodgepodge of spirits in conflict that did not really like people that much, that you had to constantly keep from being angry at you. Similarly, but not altogether the same, we live in a time where people see uh, the universe like an angry God who is so mad at you filling up for a dollar fourteen a liter. Because if you free the dinosaurs and let them back into the ecosystem after their long imprisonment under the earth we might go up 0.1 degree and then climate will kill you. Or at least we'll do something else bad. And this climate God is so angry we must appease it with trillions of dollars. More money than we've spent on anything in all of human history must be burned up and flushed away so climate won't want to kill us. And it cannot be appeased. Because if you have a really warm December, it's proof that climate is angry. 
And if you have a really cold January, it's proof that the spending is working and you need to give more. And we're kind of laughing, but the reality is we are oppressed by a doomsday cult that thinks that you have to stop having children and stop taking care of people. You need to kill the poor and freeze them out because if you burn something to keep them warm in the winter, you're going to kill us all. And the only solution is death, 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 death. Kill the old people, kill the babies, kill the poor, kill the sick. The only people who are allowed to live are the people who have been to Epstein Island. And it is just a death cult. By a bunch of people who cannot see the sunrise and say, The God of the universe is amazing. And cannot see the sunrise and say, look at the amazing power of a rescuing, redeeming Savior that can make this guy jump out of the depths of the darkness of night like a husband who has just been with his wife for the first time. And for him, the entire existence is glorious and better and more colorful than he's ever seen before. And he's so pumped, he wants to run across the sky forever, telling everybody how wonderful his wedding night was. Ha ha! (laughs) I feel pretty, oh so pretty. I feel pretty and witty and light. I'm so pretty. And I have banished all the darkness of night. I'm just reading the book. (laughs) I know there are dark times. I don't love chemical spills. I I like clean water. Um, But dealing with those things as people who are stewarding God's creation is completely different than what's mostly going on. And there are consequences. And so, here's David, believing that we have a pure communication from God that's worthy of worship. And here's David, living in a world that is dominated by the goodness of this God, even uh, his glory on display, like it says in Romans 1. How does he respond? And this is part of staying in this sweet spot with Scripture. He responds by looking into his heart and saying, hey, if creation is amazing... And the word is flawless. I'm the problem here. My heart is the problem here. David believes in the doctrine of the fall of man. And, uh, and the corruption of sin. And so he does what I think keeps people in the sweet spot with scripture. is He uses it as a way in his weakness and his sinfulness to humble himself before the Lord. And ask for help so that he can live like It's true. God, if your word is true and I messed up, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. There's like a progression here. The little things, the things I didn't even know I was doing. You know, that's the thing where the other day I had uh, 
Colton and Jolene over for tea in my office just to hang out. And I gave them the chamomile and I put it in their mugs. They were clean mugs. Usually I serve, you know, whatever. But these times I'd washed them. They were clean. And I had a mug for myself. And we all had the little baggies in the chamomile peel. And I boiled the water. And then I put the water in my mug. And then Jolene was saying something interesting. And so we just started chatting. And they sat there with no tea. Colton very graciously reminded me that sometimes tea is better when there's actually water in the mug. <laughs> That's a hidden fault. That, that, that was not on purpose. That major social fox pause. But even these things, God of glory, God of truth, declare me innocent. Help me not to do this. But then even more involvement. Keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. These are these moments where you can see something bad coming. And that little devil shows up on one shoulder. And then maybe an angel on the other shoulder. But that angel's still wearing the red pajamas. And maybe you're really in trouble. And you can see that maybe something's coming down the pipe. And you decide to do it anyways. Anybody done that? Those are really bad. And so David says... Lord, intervene. Keep me back from that. And sometimes it might turn out by like you're driving someplace to get in a fight and the Lord lets you get hit by a car and you've been kept back from that. But usually what the Lord does is he just helps you have better character. So you get out of the habit of indulging yourself whenever you have a strong emotion and learning to have self-control by the power of the Holy Spirit so that when the opportunities arise, even though it doesn't go with your feelings, there's something more important than indulging your lust or indulging your desire or venting. There is the glory of God and the truth of Scripture, and so you choose a different path. Because you don't want to be uh, enslaved to that, that, that out-of-controlness. And he says, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So again, bringing this back to something I've said before, the sweet spot with Scripture is to, nine times out of ten, use it as a way to really humble yourself before God. One of the dangerous things about Scripture is that, you know, we like to uh, notice what other people do wrong. Anybody else do that? It's really fun. And uh, it's good for the self-esteem. You know, I spend a lot of time, you know, just thinking about what you're doing wrong. Guess, Guess who I'm not thinking about? What I'm doing wrong. It's the best way to not worry about what you're doing wrong is you just stay fascinated and focused on what other people are doing wrong, which again is the trap of, of starting off getting people laughing about what's going on in Europe is that you can forget what's going on in Steinbeck. But um, I just reminded afresh that the Pharisees knew their Bibles and when Jesus showed up, they used what they'd learned to criticize him instead of humbling themselves before him. Somehow the people who didn't know their Bibles that well were the ones all flocking to him because they had a sense of this kind of need. I've been overcome by my sin. I can't control my presumptuous sins. My hidden faults are ruining my life. Forgive me, Jesus. Save me, Jesus. And so just as a rule, if you want to know the Bible really well, um, apply it to yourself Nine times for every one time you want to apply to somebody else. Nine today is that a good ratio? Maybe three to one is more uh, realistic. But um, do this: like if you're in a family and you've got a family member that's just doing stuff that you really don't like, try to change three ways 
while you pray for them to change. And then when you've seen real progress in those three things, then ask God for an opportunity to talk to them. Unless it's like, you know, if they're run, kids running into the street, you just go get them right there, and you make them wish they'd never been born. Because the consequences of getting hit by a car are so severe. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> you make them wish they never run into the road. That's what you're trying to make them wish. But do you hear what I'm talking about here? I'm... I'm, I'm uh, has Steinbeck ever had a reputation of having arrogant, judgmental people running around in it? You tell me. I, I don't, I'm not from around here. I don't know your Mennonite ways. I just, I'm from BC, where like the witchcraft capital of Canada, where weird stuff happens all the time, and nobody even knows their neighbor. I, I just, I could go to the grocery store any day in BC and never meet anybody I would know because we didn't want to know each other that much, and it was just a different world, but. And it was weird to meet people who actually went to church. And things are different here. You tell me. You tell me. But this is the sweet spot with Scripture where you're walking with God in personal transformation. And your eyes are being enlightened to the glory of God everywhere. And you see him moving and you see his hand changing your life. This is the sweet spot. It's not everything. So don't send me an email saying, well, what about this? What about... I've got 40 minutes at the max, okay? And I've got to make the best use of the time. But I would like to start by saying a worshipful conviction that the word is true, flowing into a life of seeing the power of God around you and a humble heart hoping that God... In, will just change you as much as possible. Is it the sweet spot with Scripture according to Psalm 19? So I'm going to pray for us. And if it is your desire in any way that the intentions of God's word for you would be increased in power in your life, more wisdom, more transformation, more of the character of God coming out of you, more enjoyment in it. When I read a verse that says, this isn't reading the Bible is an enjoyable experience, and you can say, like, I don't know what he's talking about, there can be change. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to worship. So, Father God, we give you your word. Lord, you know sometimes people will relate to your word in a way that takes them farther away from you. Would you deliver us from those experiences and attitudes? Lord, would you grant us the humility to see it where it's going wrong? And Lord, I just... I, we know from your word it happens. So, Lord, deliver your people. But, Lord, where we are just undervaluing and underapplying and underenjoying your word, would you break into our lives in a way that what you meant to do through your word, which is powerful, is like a hammer that breaks the rock, which is like a rainstorm in the middle of a dry season that just satisfies the earth and cools the tensions. Lord, would you send your word, which is written in the power of the Spirit over your church, that we would become 
become who we are meant to be, the glorious bride of Christ, more beautiful than the sun and more terrible than an army with banners. Lord, fearless and loveful. Lord, unanxious and powerful, moving forward and progressing, being healed and and also finding power in weakness. Would we become who you made your bride to be as we are washed by your powerful word and made beautiful in your sight with hearts and minds and words that are pleasing and acceptable to you? May the rich conviction of the Holy Spirit come so that we would know where we're getting it wrong with you. So that we can turn and be so much righter in you. In Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said,